Good afternoon and welcome along to uh, the uh, documentary which I started off probably about two months ago now, maybe it's even longer, uh, My Time with the Craze. Um, and I did the first two episodes on my own, which uh, was an introduction into who the craze were. Um, but it was to tee up uh, this little podcast uh, with a good friend of mine, Neil Jackson. How are you, Neil? I'm very well, thanks. I love seeing you. Yeah, likewise, mate. Great to have you on, and thanks for coming on. We've obviously done a few uh, things together over the years, doc different yeah. documentaries, and at the end of each of these podcasts, we're going to talk about one of the documentaries that we've done, play a little trailer, and uh, introduce people to uh, some of our other work. But you've also interviewed me, and I've also interviewed you on, on different subjects, so I thought, yeah. who better than to get on uh, to interview me about the craze than somebody who knows my story very well, and that's yourself. So... Uh, I'm all yours, Neil. Fire away. Excellent. Okay. Right. Well, first of all, how did you first hear about the craze? How did I first hear about them? Um, mm. I was 10, 10 years of age, and uh, that was my first ever recollection of Ronnie and Reggie Cray. Um, I was sitting having my tea at home, and I just remember my parents, you know, more or less stopping eating and watching the news as this news report came on about a woman's funeral and this woman was Violet Cray and it was 1982 and I just remember seeing huge crowds I remember these photographs which were being shown of these guys in suits shaking hands um, looking quite distinguished and then obviously footage of crowds and people arriving at this, you know, this church, and then vans pulling up and people being led out of the vans, these two guys being led out of the vans. And that was my first introduction to the craze, this craze funeral. Um, it was it was bizarre. I didn't know what it was about. I didn't know who was, who was there, who was involved, but I just knew that this was something monumental. And my parents, I just remember them talking about it, my mum, you know, more or less saying, hey, I remember when, uh, you know, remember when the, they went to prison. And it just became, it just, it, it obviously just stuck in my mind. But that, in essence, was the first time that I, you know, I'd ever seen or heard the name Cray. And I, I think it, it probably, it probably prompted things like, um, I know, on, you know, television and films and things like that. Suddenly, almost there became a bit of a, fascination with kind of gangsterism didn't there yeah um, there's no doubt about it i mean for, for me for me personally um I, I you know i wasn't i wasn't hooked from that moment on that didn't come a little bit later but i just i just remember just you know it just it obviously just had such a big big impression on us it left a big impression on me and, yeah. and for me um, you know, it's something which I didn't recount until years later, you know, when somebody like yourself asked us that question, you know, what made you, you know, what, what was your first impression? When, you know, when, when did you first remember, you know, encountering the craze story? And that really is, you know, it, it, it's bizarre, but that I think mm. for me, that's, that's, that's why I always feel as if my life was mapped out in, in, in a certain way, you know? So you went from there to, to, to reading professional violence for the first time how how did that how did that come across to you first time of reading yeah i mean profession of violence um is obviously a book by by john pearson and you know this was essentially the very first book on the Cray twins and uh it's still being revised and updated you know to this day um the man who wrote the book uh, John Pearson, who I met in, you know, later life, um, mm. essentially is uh, the man who I always hold responsible for the, the, you know, the direction my life took. And I've spoken to John, I keep in touch with John. And, and I've often said that, you know, things, you know, things would never have mapped out the same if he hadn't written that book. But really the the study of that book, you know, and how that came about is quite bizarre. I, I went to a school um, in Sunderland, it was a private school, and I'd been moved there from state school because, you know, I wasn't achieving the, you know, the levels of grades that I should have been achieving. I'd, I'd had a bit of a rough start in life at school, if I'm, if the truth be told. I'd gone to a primary school, which, let's just say, if Ofsted were, were in then, you know, in those days, 
the, the place probably would have been condemned and closed down. But, it, you know, that wasn't the way of the world then. And I, I ended up, um, you know, being educated at a school. Um, and I think the only thing I learned was how to fight and how to slide down a bank on a on a winter's day on a carrier bag. Other than that, you know, I, I didn't really know. I knew how to spit in the right direction. And But I, I wasn't learning any schoolwork. I couldn't add up. I couldn't take away. I couldn't read or write, Neil, you know. And, and, and that really is, you know, it, 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 was, it was horrifying. And, and the fact that my parents, you know, my parents weren't, you know, ignoring what was happening at school, but they just, you know, they they just, you know, I was the first son that never been through anything else. They were, you know, they were taking direction from the school, and it just it was clear that I wasn't up to those standards. I, I could, you know, I could read to a degree, I could write to a degree. I just wasn't capable of passing exams of a kid at that age. And uh, luckily, my parents saw that quite quickly, and they made the the relative changes to get me out of there. And to start with, they sent us to a school in Sunderland. It was um, it was a school called St Anne's, and that school was a it was a, a, originally a convent school. It's not there anymore, and it was originally an all girls school. And I was I was sent down there to you know to obviously you know to try and get myself back on track. Um, it had just started taking boys in in my first year, and I found myself in a class. I, I was actually looking at the. Um, the photograph the other day and there was a class of 14 and there was 13 girls and there was me and okay, it, it was, awful, was it? quite a unique experience at the <laughs> age of 10 uh, and 11 but yeah I mean just bizarre to be to be in that position as a kid um but yeah I, I, I just remember I remember having fun down there I remember having laughs down there I remember me, I just remember me me grandparents and my parents having to drive a long way to pick us up because it was in South Shields which is where I was born um but it was just you know just just a unique experience when you look back on it um I think I wrote in my original book the craze the Geordie connection that um you know I, I was quite the entrepreneur at uh, you know girls obviously and boys maturing at that age want to test the boundaries and I, I think I made money from I'll show you your I'll show you mine if you show me yours kind of thing and it, it became <laughs> entrepreneurial charging 10 pence for you know for that kind of thing it was just bizarre Bizarre, bizarre situation to be in and, um, you know, part of growing up. Um, my parents, you know, were happy with my progress there. My reading and writing was certainly improving. But um, I know my dad was concerned about, you know, spending the rest of my senior education in a school of girls, essentially, because there wasn't any more boys coming in. And uh, he decided... Um, in his wisdom to, to potentially move me to a, you know, another school, a, a different school, a different private school. Um, I, I had made friends with a guy called, uh, another boy in the class who was a, a year older than me, called Nigel Gibbs. And he was, um, he was in the year above me, sorry. And he was going to move to a school in South Shields. And uh, we were both hoping to go to the same school. But unfortunately... Um, he didn't get in there and he ended up going to another school and, um, you know, the dream of potentially me and him keeping my friendship and sticking together didn't quite work out. Met him again in later life as it happens and we keep in touch to this day. But, um, but yeah, I ended up going to a school in Sunderland, um, which was Argyle House School. And, and when I got there, it was all boys. I, I remember going for the, the look around the first, the first day there. And I, I don't mind saying I was, I was, pretty petrified it wasn't the same friendly welcoming atmosphere as as the school uh, that i was at in south shields um it was all boys um it had that tom brown school day discipline feel about it it, it, it you know the you know the, the cane standing in the in the corner of the um the headmaster's room when we went in for interview you know the, you know the, i think it's just that that atmosphere, you could feel it. I got I got taken on a tour around the school, into the laboratory with the Bunsen burners and the wooden beams, uh, you know, the wooden desks and that. And it just, everything was stuck in a time warp. And I was like, I just didn't like it. I, I, I got a horrible feeling about it. But of course, my parents loved it. They mm. thought, wow, this is the, you know, this, this. And of course, they're looking at what this place achieves, the results that are achieved. Mm. And um, they just thought, this is the place for, for Steve, you know. And um, so What age that, were you then? Um, I was 11. 
Um, yeah. I, I did it. Well, I was 11 and this was for me to go into, you know, I was supposed to be going into the first year of seniors the following, you know, in, into that year. Mm. As it happens, they kept us back a year. Um, although I'd made improvements at St Anne's, I hadn't made significant improvement. And uh, Argyle House, to, to, to get the standards that they you know, I, you know, attain to, I would have to like stay back a year, essentially. Right. That was what they said. So that's what they did. Um, I got kept back. I got put into a different year group. And, um, you know, I, I started my life at Argyle House. At the time, I wasn't a football fan. Newcastle and Sunderland meant nothing to me. Um, you know, I was too, I was still too young for that. Um, you know, my dad, dad, my dad wasn't wanting to push me into, you know, supporting Newcastle. And he was a big Newcastle fan. He wanted us to find my own way. A uh, bit of a risk as well, putting us into a school in Sunderland. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, but yeah, I ended up, I ended up going there, and I enjoyed it. I settled in. Um, I think I've, you know, as, as I've gone through life, I always find it very easy to to, to communicate with people and get on with people. Um, but I, I ended, I ended up essentially, you know, settling in quite quickly. Um, yeah. And my work did improve. I found it tougher. It was a harder regime. There was a bigger workload. Um, but yeah, that first year in junior school, I, I made some good friends and, and I progressed into the next level, which was senior school, S1 as it was, you know, quite comfortably. And, uh, you know, despite the the obvious problem of going from Newcastle to Sunderland to, to travel, which was quite difficult for me because I was having to do it on my own on a bus and, you know, took up the best part of 45 minutes to get there on a bus and then walk to school. Um, other than that, you know, everything else was fine, you know. Ghastly green uniform that I had to wear wasn't wasn't great either, but um, green blazer and grey grey slacks and a pair of pants. But yeah, it was it was interesting. It was different. It was you know it was just like everybody else's education. You know, none none of us really enjoyed being at school. And fast forward a couple of years, obviously getting to the third year of senior school, um, I'd probably found a level which it disappointed me parents and was disappointing. You know, disappointing to the to the school. I was. Failing to hit the levels, I was. I remember taking, you know, what you would probably call like mocks at, at, at that age, um, and I'd probably hit about 48, 49% on every exam across the board maths, religious education, biology, chemistry, physics, English language, English literature, uh, religious education, everything. I was hitting basically 48, 49%. Um, I remember sitting in the class. And I remember um, my biology and RE teacher, Mrs. Allen, coming across to us, and she she handed us the last of the results. And I was I was banking on passing RE. I thought I would at least pass religious education. And she, when she handed us the paper, and I, I got forty eight percent, I cried. You know, I remember crying. And um, I, I've got to be honest, I was a, I was a class idiot. I, I like to play the I like to play the clown. I, you know, I was in a little clique of, of mates who would do impersonations, would, you know, would, would did daft things like sneak cameras into the school. And, um, you know, when the, when, the, when, the head, when the teacher turned around, would stand up and take a photograph and then sit down. You know, why did we do that? God only knows. It's the kind of daft things kids do. Indoor, indoor breaks. We were the kids who were, you know, messing on. Our class was the one that was always checked first because we were always messing on. We we did stupid things like we picked the filing cabinet up at the front of the desk at the front of the class, which had everyone's books and belongings in. We lifted it between four of and tried to we tried to pass it to the back of the class, back to the front before the teacher came back round. Um, just daft, daft things. I mean, oh, you know, first day of term. We would um, we would arrive at the school and um, you know me me and a couple of lads Jeff Pickering um, Jason Nelson you know we always had the habit instead of opening the door with our hands and pulling the handle would kick the door with our feet so of course the first day of term the doors had a lick of paint well of course you got white paint on your foot you know what I mean it's um, you know it's still it's still drying and um, you know we were the ones who essentially the headmaster would come in who's kicked the door and you know. Not us, not us, and then they'd see our feet, you know, and it was us who'd done it. Uh, I'd always start off sitting at the back of the class as well, so I'd be sitting right at the back of the class. And of course, you can guarantee by the end of the very first day, um, when the headmaster's come round, who also did maths, which was the subject I hated the most, would guaranteed come in and go right, Wraith, front of the class, where I can see you. And it was just, it was just so frustrating. So, so yeah, the, the third year though, as I say, that was 
I was. I think I'd realised then I, I was gonna. It was gonna be an uphill struggle, and I would either have to put a lot of work in, which I had no intention of doing, um, or or you know I was gonna. I was. I wasn't gonna come out of school with top grades, you know. But but I had me heart. Had me heart set, as you know, um, on being an actor. I always oh. wanted to be an actor, and I'd started um, a Saturday drama club, drama school. Um, I, I went every weekend from from eleven years of age. Um, you know, my very first acting role. I was seven. I did King Canute in the school play uh, at the Drive Primary, but then I, I, you know, I continued when I got to Argyle House with um, with elocution lessons. My mum and dad paid for us to do elocution lessons so that I could at least speak properly. Um, that was their inclination that I would be able to have a better command of the English language and and be able to put my words across. So at least you know if I didn't pass my exams, then you know I would be able to communicate with people and potentially sell myself that way. Um, the other side it was poetry competitions, poetry research. So I, I basically, um, I was entered into poetry recital competitions where I learnt the, the poems and then went out and performed on behalf of the school. Um, I ended up performing on part of the county and I won a lot of a lot of um, competitions with distinction. So I might not have been great on the learning side of things, but I was performing well and doing well. And that was, by the time I got to that stage, that was a key part of my life, very first key moment in my life in a lot of ways. I just thought, I'm going to be an actor, and that's what I'm going to focus on. But there was there was a clear there was a clear point there where where you you, you obviously had a, a passion for all things English, even if you weren't particularly great at, at, about writing it. You know the, the lang- English language, and and you know you wanted to be an actor. You know you you, you clearly had an interest in, in in English at that point. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Um, and that really, though, was never going to stand with the the head, the, the, you know, the, the the teacher that I had for English at the time didn't like me. I think a lot of the problems I had with with taking subjects was that the, a lot of the teachers didn't like me. And by the time I got to 13, 14, I'd started supporting Newcastle. And a lot of the teachers down there, I hate to say it, were Sunderland fans who didn't like the fact that I'd chosen Newcastle to support. So... I'm not saying I'm not casting aspersions and saying these people were being as as petty as to you know to mark us down and uh, to give us a hard time, but I wouldn't put it past us now. And I know some of them, you know. But the English teacher didn't like me at all, and he was a big disciplinarian. Um, I was always in trouble with him. I hate to wish you know I'd hate to wish anything bad on him, but he ended up getting something you know pretty severe with his health, and he ended up leaving the school and. He was replaced by a guy called Peter Yates, who um, was like a breath of fresh air to me. He clearly saw something in me as a teacher, and he encouraged it. And as most people who you know took the GCSE level will know, because all levels changed to GCSEs, and I was the very first year, so I was the guinea pig year. Um, you were allowed to do with English language and English literature. You were allowed to take curriculum books like we all had to. So I did, um, I think it was Brave New World. Um, the Crucible by Arthur Miller and uh, Macbeth by William Shakespeare. But you were allowed to select a couple of books yourself. And I picked um, a book called Day of the Triffids by John Wyndham. And I'd been out to the Quayside Market um, the weekend before uh, I got the option of picking books. And that's where I picked up Profession of Violence by John Pearson. That book was was basically down on the Quayside Market. And obviously, those who aren't from the Northeast would know about it. But like most places, there's a market place every Sunday morning uh, down on the Quayside, down by the the River Tyne, just along from the Tyne Bridge. And um, yeah, that book was on a, a second-hand bookstall. It was looking up at us like that, and I paid thirty pence. I asked me mum and dad for thirty pence. They give us thirty pence. They Grimaced a little bit, my dad and me, my mum was wondering why I wanted it, but that was it. I, I bought that book and um, I read it within two days, and I found it fascinating. It was an absolutely fascinating book. Um, I was, I was, you know, blown away by the, the, you know, the the nightclub side of things, the the boxing, the the fact that they had beautiful women on their arms, they were meeting celebrities, um, you know the. Everything in that book that, that glittered, you know, got my attention. Mm. I almost, you know, blindly turned an eye to uh, the protection rackets, the violence, the you know, the you know, the the murder, um, and that's you know that you know, that was just me at the time. I, I I was just blown away by it. And I, I read the book twice within a week 
And that is some going for a, a young lad at school who, you know, wasn't interested in doing anything other than mess around, do impersonations, and had already made his mind up that school wasn't for him and then he was going to be an actor. Mm. But you took it to the next stage after after reading it. You took that book and you were able to use it for your for your English exam. You've kind of alluded to the fact that this, this new teacher, he was almost like you got a clean sheet almost. You know, you'd been a bit of a class clown. You'd um, you perhaps had your, your copybook blotted a little bit perhaps. And by the time you got into your, your previous English teacher's class, you know, he'd got the measure of you, but he left, you got a new teacher, your new teacher gave you, a, you know, a clean sheet and and allowed you to study this book as part of your, your GCSEs, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, you know, Peter Yates was, was superb and, I, and I'm, I'm pleased to say that we'll remain friends. I dedicated my very first book to Peter. Um, mm. But yeah, Peter came in, encouraged me uh, to, to use that book as a, as a potential uh, book for, you know, me, me final exams. And, you know, the GCSE worked in that way that, you you know, your mark, your final mark wasn't based on the final exam. It was based on part coursework, part exam. And and for me, that was a, you know, that was a, amazing. I just thought, wow, mm-hmm. you know, well, you know, that that actually gives me a fighting chance here because if I can get some decent work um, in prior to the exam stage, then I'm going to pass. That, mm. that was my mindset. So it changed my mindset. And because he was encouraging us with my English language, my English literature, then I put a lot more time, care and attention into that. And um, yeah, the, Steve Wraith had a bit more of a smile on his face. And um, he also had a bit of hair. He, yeah. he also had a bit of hair. Um, but it's a fascinating, fasc- fascinating photograph that um, for a lot of reasons. That was the 100th year of the school, Neil. And um, wow. my mum and dad refused to buy that photograph. Um, and the reason they refused to buy it was because they said I wasn't smiling properly. Um, and, and, and also, the school uh, threatened to shave me hair off if I didn't get my hair cut for that photo. So I'd actually had my hair cut. Right. It was actually a lot longer than that. Um, I had only Chrissy, see you now. I had a Chrissy Waddle perm. Uh, but yeah, that, 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 that was a fast, that's a story behind that photo. But yeah, look, the, the whole... Um, the whole English exam thing is 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 fascinating because you know I, I, I did study the craze book and I did pass my exam. Mm. Um, I ended up with a B and a C in English language and English literature, and I also uh, walked out with a D in geography. How I don't know whether it's because I was finding my way to school or, or what. <laughs> I, whether I was just lucky on the multi choice, whether I got extra marks for writing neatly, I've got really no idea. And I mean, I was actually putting for the lower paper in geography. So the highest highest mark I could have achieved in geography was a C. So I've always said to my mum and dad, well, that was actually a B for me because, you know, I couldn't have gone any higher than a C. But mm. but yeah, look, I left with three, Z, three GCSEs, I suppose, for them that spent a lot of money, um, you know, to try and, you know, get us an education. I left, you know, doing well in, in poetry and, and, you know, recite, reciting words and my elocution lessons had worked. And essentially I left with three qualifications, which was which was more than I thought I was going to achieve halfway through school. Oh. So, you know, it was a bonus. But I'd also left with, you know, an enthusiasm and a huge interest in Ronnie and Reggie Cray. You're probably the only person in the country to have studied the craze for their GCSEs at that time, I would, I'd imagine. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's it's not a very logical leap to the next stage though is it i mean you you didn't you didn't end, didn't end there when you'd done your gcse on a profession of violence um it was it, you'd kind of took you took it to the next level yeah I, I definitely did i mean none of this you know none of this was intentional with the careers i mean no. you see now with with people you know with somebody like Charlie Salvador, for example, who obviously we've you know been putting out a lot of podcasts this week with with oh. interviews with me and Charlie, um, but essentially a lot of people go in with an ulterior motive. I, I didn't have an ulterior motive with the craze whatsoever. Um, I passed my English exam, and that's it. And I, I decided that because I'd passed my English exam, essentially on reading about the craze lives, that I would write to Reggie Cray. And basically say, look, I've studied a book on your life. I found it thoroughly enjoyable. And you've had a bad a bad life, really. You know, you've been locked up now and incarcerated since 1969. And I just wanted to let you know that something positive has actually come out of your, 
your story, your, you know, the end of your story that I've studied it and I've actually passed my English exam studying your story. And uh, Why did you pick Reg? Why did you pick Reg and not run? I don't know if I've ever asked you that. I've got to be perfectly honest. It was down to the fact that Reg was in a prison and Ron was in a, a you know, a hospital for the criminally insane. I, mm. I, that was the mental side of things. I, I think as well with Reg, um, I just felt that I had a connect. I would have more of a connection with him. You know, I was yeah. heterosexual. Um, you know, not that I'm saying that I couldn't have co- communicated with Ron because of his sexuality, but it just. I think I had, having read the book twice, I, ha- I had more of a an affiliation, a connection with Reg's character. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was into his boxing. He could have been a contender. He was, you know... He's, he's very brilliant. good, wasn't he? Brilliant, brilliant, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and and for me, I just felt I had more of a connection with Reggie Cray. You know, he, he got married to a beautiful woman, which was one of my hopes that I would, uh, you know, achieve in life. Um, you know, he seemed to be the businessman. He seemed to be level-headed. When Ron went to prison, he seemed to have you know, have a degree of success as, as a club owner with his brother Charlie. So so for me, it, it was a natural it was a natural selection, you know. But again, because none of this was ever planned and thought out, you know, I wasn't going through that mental thing. But mm. you know, again, because you've asked us that question, that would that's probably why I picked him, you know. But writing to Reg was was simple, you know, and I, I just got a you know, a piece of paper, got a biro, wrote the letter, put my name and address at the top. Um, I did put a stamped addressed envelope in and, you know, thinking, well, you know, he probably, you know, probably wouldn't want to spend money on, on somebody who doesn't know writing back. So it gives us a, a bit of an extra opportunity for getting a reply. And that was what I did. Mm. I posted the letter off and, uh, you know, within a couple of days, I got, you know, my stamped addressed envelope back. Now, I was prepared for disappointment. It could have had my letter in and, you know, maybe nothing else. And it could have had, you know, it could have had anything in, but it didn't. It had a reply in. It was a simple reply. It was, you know, a simply, you know, dear Steve, thanks for your letter. Uh, I kind of keep up with correspondence, but, you know, uh, wishing you all the best, you know, God bless, affection, Reg Cray. And, you know, that essentially was, you know, Reg, Reg in a nutshell in those early days. You know, the, there was no need for communication with me. I was just somebody who'd sent him a letter. And uh, as, I, as I would learn later on, I was one of hundreds a week who, who would oh. write to the Crays. But, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was just a simple letter back. And um, at the bottom, there was a PS essentially saying, you know, would you please, you know, write to my brother Ron? So that's what I did. I, I dropped the same letter to Ron, wrote exactly the same and told him exactly the same set of circumstances. And within a couple of days, once again, stamped addressed envelope, dropped on the mat. And uh, I had a reply from Ronnie Cray, um, more or less the same, uh, yeah. you know, that couldn't keep up with correspondence. But thanks very much. This one was typed um, and Ron had signed it. But that was it. That was for me. Was the end of the journey. I'd uh, I'd achieved something which I never thought I would achieve, which is make contact with these two people who'd who'd help us, you know, pass you know my exams. And um, as far as I was concerned, that was it. But then you went on to meet um, to meet two characters, you know, associated with with Reg, um, who. One was was Reg's um, adopted son, uh, Brad, and and his mum Kim. Tell us how that how that came about, because that's quite a weird little scenario. That it is because you know I didn't again I didn't plan anything, and 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 having had those replies from Ron and Reg, then I didn't anticipate anything else. I'd I had posters on my wall like every other kid in Tyneside. I had Peter Beardsley, Chris Waddle. Kevin Keegan on my wall. I had Morrissey. I had, um, you know, I had the Jam. I had the Sex Pistols posters on my wall. But alongside that, I had a a, a makeshift poster that my dad had printed off for us of Ronnie and Reggie Cray, the front the front page of the book. You know, I had that image on my wall, and um, they weren't far from in mind. I had me two letters on my sideboard, and. They were always in my mind, and that that first book came out, obviously that I'd read, and then there was a a lot of other books started to come out. The you know the twins wrote a book called Our Story, which mm, that's, uh, Fred, that's what I read, which Fred Dinage had written, and then um, and then I wrote then I read uh, Murder Without Conviction by uh, Jack Dixon, Scotch Jack Dixon, and then Tony Lambriano uh, brought one out called Inside the Firm. So 
you know, by this stage, I'm, I'm quite well read on the craze and I'm starting to, you know, get to know the other characters and, um, you know, be, be you know really interested in, in the story as a whole. Mm. And probably about six months later, me, me mum comes in and, and of course my mum's, you know, my mum's very interested in the whole thing anyway. Um, she was fascinated when the letters arrived. My dad was pretty nonplussed. But when you know, my mum came in and she uh, she says, oh, I've got an article here on me magazine you might be interested in. And it was a magazine called Take a Break. And um, it was a, a woman's, you know, a woman's magazine, coffee time magazine, if you like, coffee table mag. And um, there was a double page spread in it. I'm Reggie Cray's adopted son. And basically there was, uh, you know, a photograph of a young lad. Um, now, this young lad was called Brad Lane. He was 11 years of age. He lived in Doncaster in a place called Dunscroft um, with his mum, Kim, and uh, and the dog, had a little Staffordshire Bull Terrier. And um, the photographs were of, you know, Brad basically pulling on his boxing boots and, you know, um, looking through photographs and dressed in a suit with a trilby on. And uh, ultimately... Um, you know, the nuts and bolts of the story were that Brad Lane was, you know, Reggie's adopted son, adopted with inverted commas. Um, it turned out that him and his mom had written to Reg and started a pen pal relationship up. That pen pal relationship then led to Kim taking Brad, uh, despite his young age, down to see Reg in, you know, Gartree Prison in Market Harbour. Um, I found it fascinating, got to be honest. And that ignited the... The interest again in me because I thought, wow, you know, that that in itself is something, you know, I'd love to do. I'd love to go and visit Reg Cray. Um so again, for me, although it wasn't planned, I'd I just decided, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna write to Brad and Kim. And because the because the address when I mean, the address wasn't in, but it, it you know, I thought if I just put Brad and Kim Lane, you know, Dunscroft, Doncaster, South Yorkshire then it's going to get there. And this is before Google and the internet. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't find that postcode or anything, but I thought, surely to God, you know, the postman will be able to find it with that address kind of thing, you know, um, especially with the publicity that we're getting because of being Reg's adopted son. Mm. I didn't hear, I didn't hear back. And I, mean, I put a long letter together. I didn't hear back for a couple of months. Um, so I'd written it off. I thought, that's it. You know, there's, there's no interest. And then lo and behold, I got a letter back. Um, and it was a two-pager, um, basically saying, you know, dear Steve, sorry for the delay. We'll get a lot of mail. Um, you know, we'll do a lot for Reg. Um, you know, thanks for your letter. If you're ever down in Doncaster, it would be lovely to meet you. Um, please find enclosed um, a couple of black and white photographs. You know, which we might, which you know, have you know, have on us kind of thing of um, you know, uh, you know, something you might be interested in. And one of the photographs was this one, and well, um, fascinating because. Mm. I don't think they recognised the significance of it. And, you know, there was one of Reg in a box in his boxing gear and a boxing stance. Mm -hmm. But then there was this one. And, of course, many years later, you know, I, I found out that this was Ronnie Cray on a visit to Newcastle. Um, sure. Of course, sitting, sitting with Joe Louis, who's on the far right there, uh, the heavyweight champion of the world. Um, from our perspective as well, we know that you know Ron and Reg eventually, when we did when we did our documentaries together, went up to uh, Newcastle on more than one occasion. Mm. And uh, yeah, fascinating. Paddy Hallett there sitting next to Ronnie Cray. Um, of course, little Mickey as well, uh, Ronnie's boyfriend on his left there. But yeah, fascinating to get that sent in the post. But mm. again, that was I was actually excited. I got these photographs and I was like, wow, what you know, this is amazing. And I, I just. I, you know, I, I became infatuated, and I think all all men, especially men, I think rather than women, um, like to become collectors. You know, we all collect something. We all have an obsession about something, and I think I could probably say that that is where my obsession with the craze really started to kick into gear. Um, so I wrote back, um, and you know, we kept up a, a pen pal correspondence, myself and Brad. Um, you know, Kim was writing the letters, Brad was obviously writing back, but it's an 11 year old kid. Um, you know, I was, you know, I was, I was left school by this stage. So, you know, I'm, I'm creeping up to 17 and 18 and a college and, you know, what have I got in common with a young lad like that? You know, very, very little, but the, the letters were clearly written by his mom with Brad's, you know, with Brad interjecting and, and having his say as well. Um, 
how was I ever going to get down to Doncaster? Well, as it happens, I was doing a fanzine called the Mighty Quinn, the number nine. And um, my business partner at the time in that in that little cottage enterprise, apart from me dad and me brother, was a guy called Steve Cross who lived in Scunthorpe. And Steve was printing the fanzine for us at a very cheap rate. He was a Newcastle fan. He was printing it um, at work and he was bringing it up when he came to watch Newcastle's home games. So Steve Cross was, you know, in Scunthorpe and I went down for a, a few days with him. We went down, we had a couple of good nights out. But I said, look, I'm going to chase up Brad and Kim because they live in Doncaster. And if you don't mind, I want to have one day where I go over to see them, you know. Mm. So that was it. I went over to uh, went over to Doncaster. Steve, you know, with Steve's blessing, he was very happy. You know, he was happy enough for me to go and do that while I was down there. And um, you know, I went over to you know, I went I went over to Doncaster. They picked me up at the station, and um, I met them at the station. And uh, there was um, you know Brad and Kim. Brad had a suit on, and uh, we went down to to their house in Dun in Dunscroft in Doncaster, and. Uh, Kim made us a cup of tea. She went, go on, get yourself upstairs. Brad will want to show you around. And he took us upstairs and took us into, you know, this bedroom. And I, 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 it was like walking into a craze museum. Mm. It was it was full. And I mean full of memorabilia. Um, it was full of books, it, you know, books which are stacked up to the, to, to the ceiling. It was full of suits, um, Reggie's old suits. Uh, cases full of photographs, boxes full of photographs. And he just said, you know, this is me dad's stuff. And I was blown away. And I mean, if it was if it was me going there now, I would be able to tell you what was in there. But yeah. I, I just remember looking at it all going, this is incredible. And, I, and, it, and it was. I mean, I do remember seeing the wedding photographs, Ronnie and Red, um, Reggie Crane and Francis's wedding photographs. And um, going through them, and they were all in hardback covers, and they were. It was just great to see them, black and white, obviously taken by David Bailey. And um, he then opens a little ring box, and he went, "This is Francis's engagement ring." And sure enough, it had a, an inscription in the box, and I, I, I couldn't believe it. I mm. really, really couldn't believe what I was seeing. Um, that this was, you know, this this was like a treasure trove of, you know, essentially of um, of the craze belongings. Anyway, after, you know, after that little trip down, you know, memory lane with Brad, um, you know, we went, you know, we went downstairs and we had a cup of tea. Kim was talking to me about, um, you know, all kinds of things, really. She was talking to me about, you know, what I did and she told us how they had met, um, you know, and, and how they had got introduced to the to the craze side of things, you know, before they went, you know, and, and, and got introduced to Reg by letter. Um, she talked about visits and then... In between, as the conversation was was pointing towards, you know, the visits, etc., the phone suddenly rings and, and Brad jumps up. He runs straight down the, uh, you know, the, the living room towards the phone, picks the phone up and goes, Dad, Dad. And um, on the phone is is Reggie Cray. Uh, he's he's speaking to, to Brad and I'm like, wow, I didn't expect this at all. You know, how is he, how is he actually ringing? <laughs> you know, again, yeah. nowadays I understand how it works, but... In those days, it was I was you know I was very wet behind the ears. I didn't I didn't realize that they could make phone calls. And yeah. um, Reggie Cray was speaking to to Brad. So then once Brad's had his say and, and they've chatted, um, he then speaks to he then speaks to Kim and Kim's talking about you know oh Steve Wraith's here and he's come down from Newcastle all that way and etc. And um, then she basically turns to me and says Steve, uh, Reg wants a word. So that was it. I walked. I walked up to her. I took the receiver off her, and uh, you know, I put the phone, you know, put the phone to me ear and said hello. And uh, on the other end was, hello, is that Steve from Newcastle? And I was like, yeah, it is. And that was it. The first conversation with Reggie Cray. He, um, you know, he wanted to to know how long it had taken to get down. Um, you know, what what I did for for a job. What what you know how you know. How old was I? You know, did I have any brothers and sisters? You know, what did my parents do? And and that was it. And and, and he finished off in in that couple of minute conversation that I had with him with um well you know have a good time with Brad and Kim and you'll have to come down and see us and that was it with that with that he was gone. Mm -hmm. 
I have to say, I mean, it's a, a staggering story, isn't it? That, you know, somebody who's been incarcerated for, for as long as Reg had, and, you know, suddenly there he is adopting this this lad and mum appears to be kind of encouraging it, you know, a willing participant in, in, in it, you know? Um, and it just seems a very odd, odd situation, doesn't it? I mean, look back now with what we know now, and it, it is a very odd scenario, but it was one that, kind of open the door for you if you like um and and so did you follow through on that did you go and visit him yeah i did um and and it was only a couple of weeks later i mean you know after coming off the phone to him you know she was going well, what did he say and i said well he invited me down on a visit he said would you like to come down to you know would you like to come down and and, and see me in in prison and i was like wow <laughs> you know blew me away and and mm. she you know she was she was Delighted, um, you know that that I'd been invited, you know, and, and and that was it. It was a case of getting it sorted out and, and how it was going to be worked out. But um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I was I was going to go down to see him in Gartree Prison. So, you know, once the the visit order was sorted out, um, you know, the the security, although it was a maximum security prison, Gartree Market Harbour, it wasn't as tight as it, it is now. I mean, to to go and see somebody in maximum security these days, or you know, whether it's been you know Charlie Charlie Salvador, or whether it's been you know John Henry Sears or, or Stephen Sears in prisons um, over the years, it's you know you have to sometimes have someone come to your house you have to be you have to be you know essentially screened by the you know by the prison and they send out the the local police come and see you at home um to to make sure you are who you say you are and then essentially after that can you you know you can then go on the visits that wasn't the case with with visiting reggie cray back in those days um you just your name was put on a vo you turned up with some identification and you were allowed in so so yeah we'll, we'll finish off with that visit um the the trip down to Market Harbour was was a long one. Um, it's not an easy place to get to. I I travelled to Doncaster uh, by train from Newcastle, so Brad and Kim were keen on uh, you know you know picking me up at the station and then driving me down there. So that's what we did. Um, we then went from Doncaster to to Market Harbour, and uh, as I say, it was an early start for me. I remember arriving at the prison, and this, I'd never been to prison before. So I remember arriving and just looking around and, and going, wow, this is, you know, this, this is huge. And, it, you know, it, it really sunk in. I hadn't, I hadn't let it concern me or worry me um, going up to the prison. But when I finally arrived and saw these huge walls and the barbed wire on top and the security cameras and then getting out of the car and, and walking towards the, the big steel gates, I was like, gee, you know, what am I doing here? You know, I, I, I was a bit nervous. Um, oh. Not you know, not shaking, etc. But I was a bit more, you know, it had concerned us, and I hadn't allowed it. I hadn't allowed it to concern us, you know, in the build-up to it. Mm. Um, Brad and Kim had done this on numerous occasions before, so it, it didn't freak them out. Uh, they got there. We knocked on the gate. The gate was opened. We showed the visiting order, and then we walked through. And um, you know, we're taken across the small court, <clears throat> courtyard. Excuse me. Taken across the small courtyard to um, the visiting office. And once your paperwork was, was sorted out, you were given a number and we had to wait. And there was obviously, you know, other people in there who were visiting other prisoners. Once your number was called, you would move forward, you would go through the security check and then you would be taken through to, you know, to the, the main visiting area, which in Gartree was a, a huge wide open area. And this huge wide open area had, um, you know, Lots of noise, lots of kids, and you know, lots of lots of people. You know, lots of people in there talking, and it was it was quite a hot, stuffy day. I remember that, and I just remember Kim saying, "If you want to take your seat over there, the prison officer showed us to where we had to sit." And I just remember looking at you know the the people around, and you know, looking at a lot of the sad faces and the sullen faces, thinking, "Wow, you know, this is this is this is what it's like." And you know, all these people are in here for for God knows how long. You know, this is a maximum security prison, so some of these people probably never get out. Um, and that was it. I just I just remember waiting for Kim to come back. She came back with you know she came back with the, the some sweets and some crisps for for Brad and she came back with some you know little glasses plastic cups of orange juice for for Reg. 
And then we had to wait, you know, there was the way it was set up, you know, there was three seats on one side, one seat on the other, and we just sat and waited um, for, for Reg to come. Reg was late, and as the door opened at the far end of the uh, the visiting hall, I just remember seeing this small, well, thick-set, grey-haired guy coming in, and um, he came walking, you know, walking up to us, you know, w- without anybody in, um, dressed in, you know, dressed in a... A prison shirt, blue and white striped shirt, but it was unbuttoned to the navel. Pair of jeans, um, pair of you know uh, designer trainers. Uh, he had a gold cross on, uh, you know, around his neck, and you know a, a pair of glasses and uh, you know a smile. And, and Brad just jumped on him. Brad wanted to you know wanted to you know hug him, and you know it was very fatherly. You know, very father-son kind of relationship. And uh, he rubbed his hair and, you know, Brad didn't like it because Brad had dressed up. He was suited and booted. He brill-creamed his hair and, you know, you know, he didn't like his hair being ruffled. But it was it was just like a father and son moment. It was, you know, it was almost like Reg was making up for the times that he never had. You know, he, he you know, he's never, never a father on the outside. So, you know, it was almost as if he was, you know, a surrogate, a surrogate son yeah. for him. And, and he was getting the enjoyment from, from that side of things in that way. Um, he then came to me and I'd, I'd made the effort myself. I'd, I'd worn a suit. I wore a shirt and tie and a suit. And I went up to him and uh, put my hand out and he put his hand out and we shook hands. And it was... A handshake I'll never forget. It was it was like a vice like grip, uh, you know. It was it was very very strong and like I've already said, I, you know, he was very thick set. I mean, he was in his late fifties by this stage, you know, and he he just literally won um, uh, a certificate for the for the best bench pressing Gartry, and that tells you where he was at. I mean, he was in with a lot of young in with a lot of young cons. Uh, but he was still, you know, knocking those weights out and still managing to train. He was still sparring. He was still training. But at that period in time when I met him, he was very, very, very physically fit. The thing that really stood out was his height. Um, because it's not the kind of thing that was covered in the books. It doesn't say Reggie and Ronnie Cray were this height. You know what I mean? It was not something I was, uh, you know, too too clued up on. But I'm six foot two. I actually towered over Reggie Cray. And I was that in itself for me was a bit weird because yeah. I'd read about these guys who'd you know basically run East London with you know menace, violence, you know, and and you know beaten and slashed their way to the top of the criminal tree in in, in their in their backyard. Whereas you know I'm looking at them going, how did you do this? Do you know what I mean? At, at, yeah. at that at that height, that was my that was my <laughs> mindset at that age, you know. But um, but yeah, we sat down, we talked, we had you know there was a lot of talking between him and Brad and Kim. The atmosphere was good between those the, the, those people. Um, you know, I mean, he, he always had a smile on his face when Brad was there in those days. Mm. Brad sat on his knee, and um, you know, like a father and son relationship. Mm. And you know, Reg then got down to business, puts his hand in his top pocket, pulls out a loads of bits of paper, throws them onto the table. And these are like crumpled bits of paper. And he starts unfolding the bits of paper. And on it is this, you know, like a childlike scroll. Um, you know, like the writing that had been yeah. on the letter. Lots of writing like that. And yeah. and essentially, the, the writing was different ideas and different plans that Reg had for essentially, you, you know, on the outside, what he wanted Kim to do. You need to ring this person. You need to, you know, you need to write to that one. You need to post a book to this person. You need to do that. And you could see Kim was getting, I wouldn't say knocked, but she was a little bit, you know, a little bit frustrated in, in the sense that he was barking orders at her. But yeah. that was what was happening. He was, he was laying down the law and telling her that this is what he wanted her to do. And, you know, you know, she had to scoop these bits of paper up and, and take them on her way with her, you know, because they all had, you know, different messages and, and she had to go and fulfil them. Um, he did turn to me and we had about 20 minutes of that visit, I think, where we where we talked throughout, you know, five minutes here, five minutes there. And he was interested in, you know, in me, um, interested in where I was from, interested, you know, again, you know, what football team you support. A lot of the questions which he'd asked on the phone call, which he'd clearly forgotten. But also interested in the relationship 
and and how me and Brad were getting on and you know he was asking how you know how, you know how was you know how was the journey and you know how far how far is Newcastle from Doncaster and how, do you get on with Brad and I didn't know where he was really you know where he was really coming with this you know I, mm. I, I just I just took it all in and it was you know it was a little bit bizarre and you know as, as, you know when we do another podcast I, I, we'll probably go into that mm, but but yeah I just I just found it I found it a bizarre thing to start asking. The visit though was a couple of hours. Um, you know, it was interesting that people were coming up to Reg on the visit. There was a lot of people were wanting to come up and just say hello and shake his hand. There was a lot of a lot of people coming over to pay their respects. And one person in particular um, came over who I who I remember I'd just seen on television. And I, to be honest, I was a bit shocked when he came over. And it was um, Paddy Hill. Um, and essentially Paddy was one of the Birmingham Six who yeah. of course had just been on the news um, you know they'd been released after you know having their name cleared and yeah. after serving all that time in prison and it turns out Paddy had been uh, in Gartree prison with Reggie Cray and um, you know had been on the same landing as him and uh, they got on quite well very good friends and uh, Paddy had actually come up and um he just said, excuse me, uh, do, do you mind if I just have a quick word with Reg? And, you know, Kim and me and that looked and Kim just said, oh, yeah, yeah, go for it, you know. And, you know, they the looked at each other and Paddy put his hand out and just said, Reg, you know, he says, uh, you know, I really do hope you're next, you know. And um, he went, oh, I appreciate that, I appreciate that. And he says, uh, no, I mean it. He says, um, you've served your time, enough is enough, you know. You should be out, mate, you should be out. And that was it. There was a tear in Paddy's eye yeah. um, that... Almost it was an acceptance, I think, from his behalf that Reg was never going to see freedom. He was never mm. going to see the light of day. And, um, you know, from you know from our point of view, you just thought, you know, I, 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 knew, I knew there was obviously a connection there. But again, it, it's, it, it's only with hindsight now that I realise what he was going on about and how important that was, you know. But, uh, yeah, yeah that, was, that, was, that was quite a moment for my very first visit. Um, but as as we we started getting ready to leave, and the you know the prison officers were telling everyone now that um, you know it was time to see the visits off, and you know it was time to you know time to move on. Um, you know from from our perspective, you know we, we were getting we're getting our things together, and uh, Reg just turned to me and said, "Look, I've really enjoyed the visit, Steve. I want you to keep in touch with Brad and Kim, and you know." From from my perspective, he says I'd like you to come back and, and see me sometime. He says, but I'd like you to do us a favour. And I said, oh yeah, Reg, you know whatever whatever you want us to do, you know. Uh, he said I'd like you to go and see me brother Ron. And with that, we shook hands, and uh, you know we 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 went on our way and uh, went back through the prison. Um, and, and I was I've got to be honest, it, it, it was a lot to take in on that day. And as I, yeah. as I walked back out the gates, and you know, we walked back to the car, I felt a bit exhausted. You know, it, was, it, it had been clearly a, a long day getting there, yeah. the visit, etc. And Brad, you know, Brad and Kim, oh, what did you think? And did you like me, Dad? And I was like, yeah, yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah, thanks very much for taking us. You know, and again, I didn't expect that to lead to anything else. I, you know, I had this in my mind that he wanted us to get in touch with Ron again and, and try and organise a visit with Ron. I had no idea, you know, if that was going to be an easy an easy road to go down. I'm not even sure if I wanted to go at that point because, you know, Broadmoor Hospital had, you know, it was it was something which I wasn't, you know, you know aware of. I'd never experienced anything like that, much like I hadn't experienced prison. But, um, but yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't 100% sure if it was a, a road I particularly wanted to go down. But um, I, I went back to uh, Scunthorpe that night. I got uh, I got the train back to Scunthorpe, and uh, you know I was eager to tell Steve the story. Steve was Steve thought I was mental, um, you know, for doing it. He was blown away. I remember we went out that night. We went out round Scunthorpe. Went to a place called Henry Africa's clubbing that night, which uh, which was hilarious. And um, you know we weren't we weren't I don't I think we we're underage by about six months as well. So I think we we managed to get in. We got in and we had a cracking night. And that just rounded the trip off. It rounded me summer holiday off in, in Scunthorpe and Doncaster. But um, I got back to Newcastle a couple of nights later and uh, I, I just composed a letter, wrote to Reg, you know, thanks very much for, um, you know, for, for allowing us to come and see you. You know, I'm going to write a letter to Ron and, um, you know, I'm going to try and set up a visit, um, you know, but really enjoyed it. And 
I got a letter back a day later, so I didn't even have to wait for my letter to be responded to. He'd already sent me a letter saying, Dear mm-hmm. Steve, you know, thanks for coming. Really enjoyed the visit. Um, you know, I think you'll be good for Brad and Brad will be good for you. Um, you know, please remember to, to get in touch with Ron. Um, I'll write a letter to Ron at this moment and tell him that I want you to go and see him and, um, you know, we'll see how things go. And, and that was it. That was the start of my time with the craze. Excellent. Well, well, we'll pick up in a future podcast what happened next. I think what's, in, what's interesting, you mentioned about the size, just quickly, is, is right at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about the, the craze, you know, your first impression of the craze was seeing them come to the mum's funeral. Yeah. And they, they were on that day, weren't they, put with the two biggest prison officers that, that HM prisons could find. Yes, um, that's right. Particularly to, to make them look as small as possible. Um, yeah. So I'll just chuck that in at the end there. Yeah, no, I think you're right, mate. I think you're right. Yeah, hundred percent. It's um, it's it's one of those things that the you know they did to dwarf them. You, you, you're yeah. right. Yeah, you're right, hundred percent. So, um, whenever we do one of these podcasts, I, I do want to talk a little bit about just the projects that we do, mm. and you know we've we've worked on a few over the years, um, and and many of them can be can be bought online or, or downloaded. Some some are available as DVDs. Others are available as uh, downloads, but mm-hmm. um, what I want to do is um, obviously give the people watching a chance to uh, to see one of the clips of uh, you know one of our bits of work, and um, you know then we can have a quick discussion on it before we finish. So this one is uh, is about a guy in Gateshead called Stu Watson. I was set up on a, I was set up by the police. The police set me up, and the people who were with me dispersed and left us. And he's got his, his squad on them. He should be charged for conspiracy to murder because that's what they did. They conspired to get me murdered. He was a bit of a bully boy, wasn't he? You know, people should be honest about it. Water is a living entity. Um, it's 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 it's, a, it's it's got any it's energy. It reacts it reacted around me. Um, I got introduced to the the, Maria, the the sea. I've seen Jesus. I've seen I've seen biblical people come to us in that moving the mouth, but I can't hear them yet. And I've asked, and it says you're not ready for it. What appears to be an angel coming down from the boat, landing, walking through the bar, and then disappearing. He'd done everything for Callum, and he like prayed and everything, and like worked on certain areas. Well, every time Stuart gives us, uh, I don't know what it is, but it's like a sensation. When he gives us, my lungs fill up. Warm. And literally within a couple of hours, his heart, his um, blood pressure start to actually regulate itself. People might think it's stupid, but it's not. I, I can literally walk, talk. I'm, I'm sitting here with the oxygen on now. So Stu Watson yeah. from uh, Hard Man to Healer is uh, the title of that documentary. Tell us a little bit about it, uh, Neil. Well, I mean, like, I'd only really heard of Stu for, for, for two reasons, really, before before this. One was the the, the infamous fight that, that he that he had with Viv Graham that was captured on, on CCTV, um, which, you know, you can find it on YouTube. It's, it's quite notorious. Um, and also, he quite constantly, we're talking about the craze today, but also he was involved in a case in the northeast where... Um, the, the people within it, within the case were compared to, to, to the craze, you know, the new craze. Yeah. Um, and it was quite a notorious case in, in, in Gateshead in Newcastle. Um, and so I knew Stu from, from, from this, but, but when you first told me that he was a healer, um, I, I, I'll be honest, I, I wasn't sure whether, you know, whether he was a bit mental, whether it was, you know, whether it was, it was a, what, what the crack was really, because, you know, there's this big hard man, but now he's now he's a healer. What's that all about? So my kind of conscious, my 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 filmmaker's investigative brain kind of made me want to want to kind of learn a bit more about him. And and you know, he isn't a nutter. He's he's a nice bloke. He, he's we, we went and sat with him at um, at the social club that that he that he runs. And um, not only did he tell us about the the, the you know the, the the infamous fight with Viv Graham, but you know, he, he told us he was set up by the police. He explains that in the in the film um, why he thinks that. Um, but then he, he he brought in two people that you saw in the film briefly there, who who he had 
he had helped and they genuinely felt he'd helped them. Um, and, you know, Callum, the little boy there, you know, had, had been close to death and somehow Stuart um, done done things that had that had brought Callum back. They believed from 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 certain death, um, um, and then he, he quite happily shared with us the videos that you saw there. There's some more in the in the film um, where he believes he's he's interacting with you know with with God, um, and then he he took us into his little treatment room, and you'll see in the in the footage, you know, he he. he he did a little bit of healing on me and he, he did crystal stuff with you, Steve, didn't he? Yeah. Um, and I mean, I came away, I think we both came away from it thinking, you know, there's definitely something in this, definitely. Um, I, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm an atheist, but I'm not a, a big, you know, a big religious person. Um, but I definitely came away from it feeling that there, that there was something in it, certainly. It's a fascinating film. I mean, I know I would say that, but. Um, it's a fascinating film. I think it, you know, the people that, that we speak to, other than Stu, are, are convinced that what Stu's done has, has helped them. Yeah, well, it's fantastic. I mean, it's a great documentary. Um, of course, you know, the piece in there, which we saw uh, Stu in, in an encounter with Viv Graham, is something that he's well known for on Tyneside. I mean, mm. uh, you know, that, that CCTV footage has been uh, viewed many, many times on YouTube. And of course, it's uh, something which the Sears family and uh, Viv Graham were convicted of, as, as well as a couple of other guys. Um, but yeah, that, that's probably what he's more, you know, more known for. And obviously, for the first time on camera, he actually speaks about about that particular that particular incident doesn't he that's right yeah tells us all about it how it came about but also you know like i said his belief that, that the whole thing was a was a setup and as i say you'll have to in true salesman fashion you'll have to watch the film to see exactly what he says but you know he's he's quite adamant that it was a it was a, a police fit up job good stuff so where can people see that neil so that's on amazon um so amazon prime um if you just type in um Stu watson Hard Man to Healer, um, it'll come up. It's it's on Amazon Prime. And you can buy or rent it from from Amazon today. Great stuff, Neil. Thank you for interviewing me. Uh, look Absolute forward to setting look forward to setting another one up, mate. And um, I think it's only it's only right that we uh, we play out with uh, our Craze the Lord uh, single, <laughs> which which of course uh, is raising good money for charity and is available from all uh, downloadable uh, music outlets. Uh, but Neil, thanks very much, mate. Take Pleasure. care. Take care. This will help to make you happy, happy, happy. Thank you.